When a crocodile attacks a person, nobody thinks that uh, that crocodile should be reproached for what it's done. Or a tiger, it's being a tiger, being a crocodile, doing what it does. We might be annoyed when our dog barks at the mailman. I want to throw the dog through the wall a lot. Um, but it's being a dog, and I have helpful family to remind me, it's just being a dog or a cat. It does all the awful things that cats do. Why anyone has a cat, I don't know, but it is silly and absurd of me to think that a cat is going to do anything differently. It's going to be a cat, which is why no one should have a cat. Animals don't have a choice. They're not, they're not walking through a process of decision-making when they do what they do. They act out of satisfying a need, um, getting a pleasure, or avoiding pain. And they act according to whichever one of those presses most strongly. Whichever of the impulses is strongest. So no one in their right mind thinks that an animal is being selfish. If we project, if we humanize them, we anthropomorphize them, um, then we can end up in that crazy place. My, my animal is being selfish. They are just being a cat, a dog, a shark, or whatever. People are different. Yes? If a person knows everyone in the house is hungry and eats all the food, or if someone refuses to share a bit of something, or they won't make room on the couch, they're hogging the couch, or if they take control of the air conditioning. I could be talking to somebody out here. You know, seize control of the air conditioning. We don't just excuse that as being humanish. Like, oh, we couldn't do otherwise. Oh, it's just what it means to be human. Yeah, of course you're going to eat all the food. Of course you're going to seize the couch. No, we call that selfish. We know it as selfish. It offends our sense of what's right. It offends our sense of justice, proportion. We know that uh, having reason means we have choice. I'm rational. Unlike the animals, I, I have choice. You have choice to do other than you have done. We know we don't have to follow our impulse of satisfying our need, seeking a pleasure, or of avoiding pain. People from all time have known. They've known this truth. They've known that it's right. They've known that it is, in fact, essential to being a human being. It's part of humanness to master impulses, to master those those drives to just seek pleasure, avoid pain, and to also look for the good of others. That's something only humans can do. Of all earthly creatures, only humans. So only humans can be selfish. Now, tragically, self-centeredness has become the defining feature of our kind. It is the self-centeredness, conscious, rational self-centeredness is what marks our kind. 
It's a life lived with constant self-reference. That's marked us since the fall. So to be human is to look out on the world, to look out on a world that's centered on you. It's inescapable from humanness. So what we all know to be wrong, what we all know to be a distortion of what we ought to be, Everyone knows this. Pagan, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian alike. We all know this. What is a distortion of what a person ought to be, we all find deeply embedded in our flesh. Worship of the self and love of the self as the highest. Our interests. This was not God's design. Not God's design. So for each precious heart to turn from our maker, to turn from our friend, and to attempt to make our world conform to our desires, that was not his design. For each mind to be broken, and we all experience some brokenness of mind, to turn all the effort of the mind to justifying our self-rule, excusing our self-rule. This was not the Lord's design. But without God as ruler, with God ejected from us, that's the shape of things. The tragic shape of things, desperate and alone, striving and frustrated, Seeking our own interests that we can't quite fulfill, never finding it fulfilled, never finding ourselves free. This is us as human beings. The Jews knew this just as well as we do. Today, we're in John chapter 3, the first 12 verses. Please turn. And here we read of a particular Pharisee named Nicodemus who was one of the teachers that that taught Israel that freedom from this slavery, freedom from this self-centeredness would come through following the law. They knew this to be the problem, just as we do. The Greeks and the Stoics of the time, all around the known world, they were teaching that disciplined self-mastery So practices of discipline, strengthening the will, would be the path to freedom. But the Jews knew that would fail. They knew that you can't overcome the tyranny of the self by looking to resources of the self. It's all broken. I will use this broken thing to fix this broken thing. It's going to fail. So the Pharisees taught obedience to the law as the way of freedom. It's it's with that assumption that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. That's what he's bringing to Jesus. He's a ruler of Israel. He's one of the 70 that comprise the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the ruling elders of Israel. And as a Pharisee, he assumes that the right application of the law 
is what will bring freedom. This much desired freedom. And it will realign the people of God. They know there's a distortion. Pharisees were sharp to this. Israel's broken. I'm broken. You're broken. They, they knew it. If we could align ourselves with the law, it would bring freedom. It would realign us with God. Paradise regained. God ruling over people again. Our hearts conformed. Our hearts made right. From the outside in. So he says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know that you're God's rabbi. For no one can do these things that you're doing, these signs that you're doing, unless God is with him. I don't know if you've ever heard it this way, but what he's saying is, teacher, I know you're bringing the right teaching of the law. We, we can see that. You're able to give us what will free us. This was the role of the rabbis, to interpret the law. Every school of each of the rabbinical schools, give the right teaching and the application to free us. Teacher, I know, rabbi, he says, I know you have that teaching. You can break the tyranny of the flesh. We haven't yet found it ourselves. But you have the power that you're displaying with the signs you're doing, it proves you to be God's prophet, meaning you are speaking for God. You have the right interpretation. So his unstated question is, so what do I do? Give the teaching. What is the key to understanding the law? What's the right application? What, what must we do? Now, before we consider Jesus' response to that, I think we should face a reality. We ask similar questions to what Nicodemus has asked here. I mean, despite being redeemed people, even as Christians, we ask forms of these questions, what do I need to do in order to master this unruly flesh? Give me the right interpretation what must I do? What do I need to know in order to have the victory? What can I, what can I, what do I need to know? Or what can I do that will free me from slavery to my feelings? That will free me from slavery to my desires? Just give me the key. And for a long time now, especially in the Western world, we have, Christians, have turned our faith into an answer to those questions. Christianity is often thought about as a system of beliefs, a philosophy of life, or a set of religious practices. I dare say many of us in this room uh, 
think that what has brought us together this morning is a set of ideas. We agree about a set of ideas. We agree about a philosophy of life, and so we're here. This may be you. And ideas can change, like a set of clothes. We can take pieces out of those set of ideas. And if you, you change the wrong piece, the wrong set of your clothes, then you don't belong anymore. Because you can hold on to some, you can change out others. Underlying that assumption is that a right combination of ideas combined with the right set of religious practices, that will give us freedom. Get Christianity right. Get your ideas right and you'll be free. So before we reproach the Pharisees, there's a biblical mirror for us. This set of beliefs, it, it, it's filling the same function. If you find yourself there, it's filling the same function that Nicodemus is looking for in the law, that the Pharisees were looking for in the law. Get the ideas right. Get their practical application right. This is ethics. Get your ethics right, and life will go well. There's, there's a shade of truth in that, right? It's so close. It misses the bald reality that we can never do it. There are conservative versions of this. There are liberal versions of this. But in either case, it is a faith in a religious system. Get Christianity and its practices right. You'll overcome this helpless enslavement to the flesh, this enslavement of the fall. Well, Jesus has a profoundly different answer. far from what Nicodemus expected. We had better listen to what the king says. I know that this is pushing, right? This is pushing against so much of probably what we, many of us grew up with and really what forms some of our horizons. I understand this is pushing and it's Jesus that's pushing against it. It's not me. I'm just saying what Jesus says here. He doesn't give a key to understanding the law or a rule for application, he says, the truth, truly, truly, the truth is, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The restored paradise that you seek, Nicodemus, it can't be reached through the law. The restored paradise that you seek is reached by a new birth. Initially, this, this seems totally unhinged from the law. Like, he's not making any sort of connection. It challenges the, the very assumption of the Pharisees about being right with God, that the law is the way to be right. 
So Nicodemus is incredulous. I don't see the connection. How can this be? How can, how can a man be reborn? His statements there are not technical. He's, he's not saying, come now, Jesus. How can a grown person get inside the mother's womb again? This is, he's being incredulous. That is, what are you saying? I don't even understand. In other words, Obviously, you're not talking about natural birth. That's the import of his question. Obviously, you're not. So what do you mean? Nicodemus is not a stubborn person here. He's wanting to know, but he's bringing these assumptions. A lifetime. So Jesus makes a connection for Nicodemus with the law. He reminds Nicodemus of a prophecy in Ezekiel. I kind of wish our Bibles would put notes, put a note on this that many of them do. It's from Ezekiel, chapter 36. If you have a Bible, you could flip right there. I'll read it. Beginning in verse 25. God had said through his prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will change out your heart and I'll put my spirit within you, the spirit of God, and cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause you to live into the law, to live it, to apply it properly. So look, through Ezekiel, God had said, your hard hearts are inclined to idols and uncleanness. This fallenness, is enslavement. You are inclined inevitably this way. You hunger for destruction. You thirst for death. And you try to manipulate others. You even try to manipulate spiritual beings, the gods, demons, to serve your own self-focused ends. You, my people, you'll do anything that you can do to serve yourself. And I see it you even use the law to try to manipulate your maker. That's, that's been your use of the law. That's our use of Christianity. To manipulate our maker. But God says, I'm going to wash you clean from all that. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And the result will be a new heart so that my spirit will bring my rule into your heart. My spirit will bring my rule into your soul. This prophecy said that the law doesn't give new life and freedom. Contrary to your assumption, the law doesn't give new life and freedom. Instead, New life in the Spirit will enable you to obey God with joy and gladness. Live out my gift of law. 
So hear that prophecy of Ezekiel in Jesus' answer. Jesus says, very truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. If you've read that water to mean either he's talking about, well, there's physical birth and then there's spiritual birth. If you've, you've heard him, maybe that's baptism. He, he's teaching Ezekiel. You can bet Nicodemus knows exactly what he's talking about. So he's saying, Nicodemus, bring to your mind what I've taught you before through my prophet. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, which you don't know where it comes from or where it's go going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. This is not a set of beliefs and practices. This is not a new religion. far more radical than that. It's far more radical. This is God's design. This is going back to the fall, back to the garden. Jesus says the kingdom of God is entered, paradise is restored, and it is enjoyed by a recreation. That's radical. You can change your friends. You can change your clubs. You can change your societies. You can even change who you call family. You're denying reality, but you can change who you call family. Those moves are in the flesh. But entering the everlasting kingdom, entering the realms that continue forever, that's a change of soul. That's the deepest part of us. The Holy Spirit comes into a person's soul. Not from the outside in. It comes into the inmost place. And the presence of his holiness washes the soul and gives a new heart. That's the washing straight into the depths. This is newness of life. This is the new creation that Paul is on about again and again. He's celebrated. Jesus tells us that we will move from the condition of despair and enslavement, that, that enslavement to impulse, that enslavement to our feelings, that enslavement to everything that are, just fires off in us. He'll move us from that to hope to freedom, to stability, to a life that goes on and on. We'll move from a condition of spiritual death. Because God's spirit is absent. Where God's spirit is absent, that's death. He will move us from death to being spiritually alive through the presence of God. So being born, this new birth in the life of the Spirit, it introduces a new principle into our lives. 
There's something there that wasn't there before. The Spirit brings the love of God. It wasn't there before. It was ejected at the fall. The love of God was not in humans. Agape, divine love. This is love for God, love for the highest, love for the best. It wasn't there. He brings it by his spirit. It's a willingness to sacrifice our normal, the, those fleshly desires and ambitions. I'll lay those down. I'll sacrifice those, our normal pursuit of happiness. For the pursuit of the highest happiness. I will sacrifice lesser goods for the highest good. I could not do that before. And the love of God brings that. Having love for God, then, uh, his love in us also gives us love that wants the best for other people. We didn't have love for him, and so we couldn't have that love for others, that we would want them to know and love God more than what would make them happy in the short term. Yeah, it is only through God's love that we can want eternal happiness for our friends and family above their short-term happiness. The parental instinct is to want short-term happiness. It's right there with our babies. We want to fix that. We want to fix their unhappiness. And as they grow, whatever age, we want to fix that unhappiness. Only God's love can enable us to want their eternal happiness above the short term. For our children, for our friends, for our own parents. And it's only through God's love that we can trust him to work good through even what is suffering, short-term suffering. So then, while we can change a set of beliefs, and one day you can think, this sounds right. And the next day you can think, oh, that sounds right. Jesus says the kingdom of God is a matter of God's spirit. And once that spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus, God taught that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will receive that. Glance back to the opening of John's gospel. He says this to all who did receive him who believed in his name, who trusted in him. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, not by any human decision, not by any choice, but born of God. So with that unshakable God, that unchangeable God, when he gives his spirit, he has made a firm commitment. If you've received him as your Lord, he has made a firm commitment to you by giving you his spirit. He's made a covenant to forgive you. Like that covenant with Abraham that cannot be broken. 
And he's given his unwavering commitment to be a faithful father to you. The word says, if we are faithless, and we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself who's in you. So for our faith then, this means our faith is it's in God. Our faith is in God. Our faith is in his kindness. Not in our ability to think right. Our faith is not in our ability to do right, to think right thoughts. Our faith and our hope are in Jesus and the mercy he offers. Not in performing well. I'll say it again in another way. Our faith, our trust, is that God truly gives what he has promised. He gives a new heart. He gives a new life. He gives a new principle of love. Jesus teaches Nicodemus that this is the new dynamic of life. And this new dynamic, or sorry, this new life is dynamic. This, this teaching about the wind. He points out the wind. It blows where it wills. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it came from. There's a word play here. The same word is wind and spirit. You don't know where the spirit comes from. You don't know where the wind comes from. He's gesturing. No human can harness or control the wind. Someone born of the Spirit is like that, Jesus says. A man or a woman born of God is now subject to that indwelling rule of God. You know you don't control him. We no longer pretend we're in control. This is one of the greatest gifts of the indwelling Spirit. We no longer can pretend that we control God. He rules in us. When we try to control, he gives us a correction. There's an internal rebuke when we try to control. We are subject to the Spirit. And like the wind, his presence in us is evident in the children of God. We can, the wind is invisible. But we can see where it is. It moves the trees, it moves the leaves, the grasses. Like that, you can tell the presence of the Holy Spirit in a child of God. Invisible yet evident. So, finally, again, Jesus echoes Ezekiel. The word is always consistent with the word. If we find ourselves, if we, we, there's a seeming contradiction, the, the lack of understanding is with us. The word is consistent with the word. The new heart and the new spirit mean a person is freed from placing their trust in the law for freedom. But it's by trusting God himself that we become free to enjoy life to enjoy life in obedience to God. So what the law was meant to do 
from the outside in to shape and conform. He gives transformation on the inside so we can enjoy uh, the freedom that obeying him gives. Without, without that desperation, without the frustration of striving and failing, we have assurance from within. So he teaches us what's good for us. He nudges us by that spirit. He nudges us to what is holy. He can only nudge to what is holy. He can only lead to what's consistent with him. He pulls us up from what harms. And the word is very helpful for this. Because through the apostles and prophets, he has stated, he stated it all in his written word. So his spirit gives us a new desire to know him, to follow him. And the word enables us to check. Am I hearing? Is this consistent? Am I following the, the rule? Am I being transformed? What has he said? And the word guides. So I encourage you, hear the gospel today. The good news. The good news is always for believers as well as unbelievers. By receiving Jesus as Lord, he gives us his spirit. This, this is faith, a relational cry for help to the one who can give help. And the Lord tells us that when that relationship has been established, when we have stretched out in faith and that Fatherly relationship has been established. He is faithful to it. That's good news. You will wander. Your flesh is poisoned. My flesh is poisoned. We're going to wander because of that poison. Rebelling against our own redeemed soul. We have this soul washed and clean. Our poisoned flesh will drive us and lead us. And sometimes you'll put your faith in some horrible idea. Sometimes you'll put your trust in a death-laced hope. Something that has been sown by the enemy and has taken root and offers hope. And you'll engage it. You'll put your trust in it. Or perhaps some distorted dream that you've imagined. But he stays faithful. This is good news. He is faithful. If you have done this, if you've plucked this fruit, if you've stolen, stolen from the grapes we weren't authorized to have, thank you, kids, <laughs> your metaphors. The king's coming. Repent. Turn back. Admit that you've done it. Acknowledge to him, you have eaten poison and you don't want it. Repent. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. This is the season of repentance. 
So humble yourself and accept forgiveness. And then join with us when we celebrate Christ's victory over death. Joyously. Free. It is our death. It's our death and our life that we celebrate, that he has given to us. Lord, oh, that we could know you. <laughs> that we might know you. Lord, lead us on by your spirit. Guide us into the way of truth. When we try to short-circuit your transformation, we try to conform ourselves and then present ourselves proud at what we've done. Lord, we have forgotten who you are. We've forgotten you. Enable us to know you. In Jesus' name.